Thank you, Renee. Please open your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we'll be returning to our study of Luke this morning after taking a four-week pause to consider um, biblical parenting. We now return to Luke's Gospel, and we will look at a marvelous passage displaying the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. The glory of Jesus Christ revealed. The last time we were here, we had looked at the confession of Peter in verse 20. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ of God. And the aftermath of Jesus' response to that. And then Luke tells us about eight days after these sayings, he took them. So there was a break in time. That's why we put in our four-week break. But I'd like to begin. It was a little longer, but seemed fitting. But let's read Luke 9, 28 to 36. A very familiar account. An amazing account. A pinnacle. Really un- unmatched until Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection in displaying his glory. Luke 9, 28 to 36. We'll only be looking at the first half of it this morning. There's so much here. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Truly amazing account, frequently referred to as the transfiguration, as that is the the way the uh, Gospel of Matthew records it, speaks of Jesus being transformed into light. Amazing for a number of reasons. The glory of Jesus revealed these two Old Testament prophets, present Moses and Elijah, God the Father speaking from heaven. And in many senses, this event is the turning point in Luke's gospel. We have reached the end of what I would say, if you had to loosely divide the gospel into two parts, you'd go from Luke 1 through 9, this event, the transfiguration. And then starting in 951, we begin the journey to Jerusalem. If you look down to 951, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And for the rest of the book, 
We're heading to Jerusalem. We're heading to the cross. And Luke will begin section after section on their way as they were going to Jerusalem. And so this encounter with Moses and Elijah, their discussion with him about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, sets Jesus' face. He comes down from this mountain and is resolute, focused, and the rest of the book is written in the shadow of the cross. So this is a turning event in the gospel. It's also a culmination event because as we've looked already, Luke's been asking the question, who is this Jesus? This ties back into his reason for writing to Theophilus, that he may be convinced certain of the things of which he was taught. And the discussion of who Jesus is has been going on starting in chapter 7. If you remember when Jesus raised the widow's son, crowds marveled and they said, a great prophet has risen among us. So the crowds are beginning to grapple. Who is Jesus? And they say, okay, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. Then in Verse 20 of the same chapter, John the Baptist sends messengers questioning who Jesus is. And the men came and said to him, John the Baptist has sent us saying to you, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And then in chapter 8, as Jesus calms the storm and he speaks in the same voice that spoke them into existence, calms them now, the disciples tremble in chapter 8, verse 25 and marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands the wind and water? And they obey him. Question being raised, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The next time we see that question asked, it's on the lips of an evil king, Herod, in chapter 9. We saw in verse 9, Herod said, John, I have beheaded, but who is this? about whom I hear such things. When a, when a writer writing a narrative repeats these questions, he's, he's trying to make a point where we're heading somewhere. and It leads up to what we saw a few weeks ago where Jesus asked that very question to Peter. Similar context of prayer. In fact, we noted that prayer in Luke's gospel is often the context that new information is revealed. Jesus praying came out of an all-night prayer vigil knowing who to choose for his 12 apostles. And here in chapter 9, verse 18, just a few verses back from where we are. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? So first we look at popular opinion. They answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So this is a, a sub-pinnacle, a sub-summit. The disciples have arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. And we saw how, in response to that, they get more information. As Jesus reveals to them that, yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, they are right for saying this, but he is a Messiah who will suffer and die and then come with a kingdom in glory. Verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And then the next piece of information they're given is, if this is the type of Messiah that they are following, what must their discipleship look like? 
The student, after all, is like the teacher. If the Messiah will suffer and die, verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me, which is to say, be like me. Before the crown comes the cross. Before glory becomes humility. Jesus does make it clear Look in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The disciples' expectation of a coming, glorious, powerful, triumphant Messiah is not wrong. It will happen. But first, Jesus tells them, comes the shame, the ignominy, the death on the cross. And then... He makes this promise in verse 27, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So the question's been ringing and ringing, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus? The disciples get the right answer in part. He's the Messiah, they get more information. Now, that is not enough. God the Father is going to give testimony to who his Son is. God the Father is going to show to these disciples who Jesus is. Now, we'll next week, we'll be looking at the Father's testimony. The Father reveals Jesus' identity to them in two ways, by first revealing the glory that was set aside during the incarnation, and then verbally by declaring who his Son is. And we're going to look at the image, what is seen this week, and then we'll next week look at what is said as it relates to the identity of Jesus. So this week, we see the glory of Jesus Christ revealed. As Luke wants to answer finally, authoritatively, fully, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So let's begin our study with verse 28, where Luke gives us the setting. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And that is significant. Luke wants us to see the connection he wants to connect this account with what came before, specifically Peter's confession. We're still, in other words, he wants to make it, we're still dealing with who is Jesus. Jesus asks the question, who, who do the people say that I am? Okay, who do you say that I am? And Jesus reveals more information. We're still dealing with that question. And the Father will go on record, God the Father speaking audibly as to who Jesus is. So about eight days after these sayings, Luke wants us to see these connected, these two events. And then he tells us who. We get the when, eight days. We get the who, Peter and John and James. Now these three men form Jesus' inner circle. Frequently, they are pulled apart from the twelve. Most recently in chapter 8, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, he only brought in Peter, John, and James. Two of these men will go on to write New Testament letters. And what Peter sees on this mountain will stick with him for so long that it will be one of the last things he writes of. And that's what's remarkable. is This event, seeing Jesus on the mountain, was so significant, left such an impact. Listen to Peter in his second epistle, chapter 1, speak of this event. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, 
And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's last epistle, talking about setting aside his earthly body, getting ready to die, is still thinking of, speaking of, remembering this event. Beholding the glory, hearing the Father speak. So he gives us the when, eight days later, the who, Jesus, Peter, John, and James. And we get the where, up on the mountain. That's significant. We'll come back to that. So Jesus goes up on a mountain with three of his disciples to pray. That's the reason. Why? To pray. And prayer, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, is a big part of Jesus' ministry. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Jesus private ministry, the consistency, the dedication, the discipline of his private spiritual life of prayer and of studying God's word. Remember three days in the temple, nonstop studying, 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 the committing to prayer all night regularly gave the power for his public ministry. And, and if Jesus so devotes himself to prayer, so prioritizes prayer, how much more ought we? But there's another theme that's connected in Luke's gospel with prayer, and we've seen that most recently, and that is the, the revealing, the giving of new information. New information. So we saw in chapter 6, verse 12, and then we saw in chapter 11, no, sorry, not chapter 11, chapter 9, Actually, just recently, chapter 9, he was praying alone, verse 18. And in the context of Jesus praying alone, what happens? Peter figures out who Jesus is, states it rightly, and then more information is given. More information is given. This is a pattern. The same thing's happening here in the context of Jesus' prayer. More revelation, more information is given. As Jesus is praying and the disciples are snoring, glory comes. So that's the setting. And then where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning is simply looking at verses 29 to 31. As this amazing text tells us, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is the transfiguration. And we're just going to look at two points and try to tease out what the significance of them is. First, the description of Jesus' faith, face and clothing changing in appearance. The description of Jesus' faith, face, face and clothing changing in appearance. What's going on here? As Jesus is praying... And I love how Luke describes this. It's not as though glory is added. It's just altered. That's what he says. It was altered. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. What's, what's going on here is this. There's no glory being added. Rather, the glory, the intrinsic glory that Jesus has is being revealed. There's nothing new being added here. Rather, Jesus' identity is sort of shining through. We know from other passages like John 17 that the Son 
before he became man, had glory with the Father. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Father, now glorify me with the glory that I had in your presence before the world began. The Son was with the Father in glory. The Son had his own glory with the Father. And according to Philippians, he set it aside. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, made himself nothing. And here, that intrinsic glory of the Lord is for a short period of time revealed in prayer. And in doing this, as the disciples wake up, point one, Peter, John, and James, they saw a glimpse of the kingdom of God. They saw a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus had just promised this. Verse 27, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. They get a taste of that. What, what will that be? It will be the event when Jesus returns to bring in the kingdom, when he returns in his glory with his holy angels, with his saints, when he returns in power, not in humility, when he turns in triumph and not in weakness. And Jesus said to his disciples that some of them standing there would see that before they died. And Luke makes it clear this is only eight days later. And so this is in part a fulfillment of that promise. Raised saints present, a glorious Messiah, God the Father speaking. They're getting a taste of that. They're getting, this is what they were looking for. They were looking for, they were ready for. The Jews of Jesus' day were anticipating, were excited about a Messiah like this. And they stumbled over a humbled, dying Messiah. Jesus predicted that before they tasted death, some would see this kingdom. And I believe in part that's a fulfillment of this. The second part, which is important, is they beheld his glory. They beheld his glory. Now it says initially that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, but if you keep on reading, it becomes clear it's the glory of the sun that they're standing and sharing in. Look at verse 32. When Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So they appeared in glory. What glory? Jesus' glory. They beheld his glory. Now, that is significant because that truly is the thing we need to see. In fact, embedded in this text is a call for us to see. If you look in the ESV where it says in verse 30, and behold... What it's really saying is, look to the reader. Luke, the narrator, is telling us, look, see. Two men were talking with him who appeared in glory. And I don't know if you've been reading some of my articles in the pastor's pen, but in the recent months, I've talked about the importance of seeing glory, beholding glory, seeing something beautiful in the risen Christ, seeing something captivating in Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 4, what's the difference between those who perish 
and die and go to hell, and those who are redeemed, those who are saved. According to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it comes down to seeing or not seeing glory. Seeing or not seeing glory. Listen to this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And a verse later, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Luke, the narrator, is calling on us to look and to see. And as we continue to dive in and look at this passage, that, that should be your prayer, that you see something beautiful, something captivating in this Christ. They beheld his glory. Turn, turn to me to John chapter 1. I've already pointed to you how significant defining, molding this event was for Peter. Let me show you the impact it had on the Apostle John. Even though John's Gospel does not directly contain this account, the other three Gospels do, John references it in his prologue. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'll jump down to verse 16. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Here's John beginning his gospel, and he's saying, I've, I've seen His glory. I've seen His glory. Yes, yes, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's thinking of this event. He held His glory. And it captivated Him. And it changed him, and it endured in its effect. This is the evidence of who Jesus is. This is the, the clear proof. God the Father determines there'll be the two or three witnesses necessary to confirm an event. Three gospel accounts to confirm the event. This is the Son of God. And then, as we saw Moses and Elijah appear with him, there's a lot of discussion. What's their significance? What are we to make of the fact that Moses and Elijah are here? Now, first off, I have no idea how they were recognized as Moses and Elijah, but somehow they knew this is Moses and Elijah. The narrator tells us this is Moses and Elijah. I can think of at least um, five things here, significance from the appearance of Moses and Elijah. First, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus to confirm his divine identity, to confirm his divine identity. Now, keep your finger here in Luke. Let's go back to Exodus 33. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Exodus this morning. But if we're to understand what to make of this, we need to understand a little bit about Moses' life. After all, Jesus was not the first person to go up on a mountain to meet with God and have his face shine, was he? No. No, he was not. 
In Exodus 33, we find Moses on the mountain with God. The golden calf incident has already happened. Moses came down, saw the people, had broken loose, saw them worshiping the calf. He smashed the Ten Commandments. Moses is the only person to break the Ten Commandments all at the same time. And, okay. Um, and he went back up on the mountain. And God's initial response to Moses is, okay, Moses, I'm going to kill them all and start over with you. And Moses then intercedes for the people, and something amazing happens. God's relents. And we learn in the progress of Revelation that this God whom we serve is a God who will listen to righteous intercession, that when a righteous intercessor stands up on behalf of sinful people, the Lord God will listen. The Lord yields. And Moses is very bold here. He pleads to the people, God relents. He says, you'll spare the people. But then he says, but I will not travel with the people because otherwise I'll devour them. Moses says, oh no, Lord, if you're not going to go with us in our midst, just, just kill me here right now. What is our boast? What is our glory? What is our claim to fame except that the living God travels with us? And then the Lord says, okay, okay, then I, then I will go with you. Moses isn't done being bold. He's going to push a little more. Exodus 33, verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people And here's where the Lord relents and says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. How shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Now get this, verse 18. As Moses then say, show Please show me your glory. Show me your glory. The Lord said, I'll make my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to him, I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to him, I'll show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, behold, I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by and then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So Moses says what? Show me your glory. Lord, I want to see your glory. What's the Lord's answer? You can't see my glory and live. No. I'll make my goodness pass by you. I'll declare my name to you, but I'll have to hide you in the cleft of the rock and walk by. Because God never intended to reveal his glory on earth to men, apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ. Never intended to do that. But what is truly amazing is that when God does, for the first time in human history, on this earth, reveal his glory in the person of his son, who gets to be there to see it? Moses. God can remember a prayer request from a thousand years ago. And answer it. I, I first struck upon this insight actually listening to some Christian music. Not, not all Christian music is as deep and rich as this. I, I wish it were, 
But some songs actually can teach the Bible. And Michael Card wrote one, this little folk song, and I remember riding in my car as I listened to the face that shone. I just want you to listen as he makes comparison to, to Moses and Jesus. First, speaking of Moses, it's Michael Card's The Face That Shone. He ate the bread from heaven, drank water from the rock, the grumbling children followed like a misbegotten flock. He climbed up on a mountain that they couldn't even touch. Who'd have ever known one encounter could have ever meant so much? And up upon that high place in a cleft of solid stone, his face was set on fire as the God of glory shone. And he alone had seen it and had lived to tell the tale. But because they feared the fire, he had to hide behind a veil. And then speaking of Jesus... He was the bread from heaven. He would be the smitten rock. He had 12 confused disciples. They were his bewildered flock. When he climbed up on the mountain, he took Peter, James, and John. In the face of pending glory, they soon began to yawn. And as he prayed while they were sleeping, he was transfigured into light, his face a flash of lightning, his clothes so burning bright. And here's the line that amazed me. I, I think I pulled my car over when I first heard this and I had to stop. So Moses finally saw the face before he'd hidden from. Why are Moses and Elijah here? To confirm the identity of Jesus. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I can't show you my glory right now. I can't show you my glory right now. But when I do reveal my glory in my son, who is very God of very God, Moses gets a front row seat this is the exact point the Apostle John is making in that passage that we had just read in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus is God. And Moses' presence and Elijah's presence confirm that. As Moses' prayer request from Exodus 33 is here answered, what else does their presence do? It confirms his divine identity. Second, it confirms his prophetic unity. His prophetic unity. Now, Jesus has already been accused of messing with, tampering with, being inconsistent with the Old Testament. Has he not? Chapter 5, the Pharisees. Why do you and your disciples not fast like we do the disciples of John? And Jesus admits there's a sense in which what he's bringing is new, the new wine and the new wineskins. He recognizes that the Pharisees prefer the old. But even though Jesus is bringing and doing something new, it is by no means in contrast with, it is no means in conflict with what has come before. Moses and Elijah are perfectly friendly and at peace with Jesus. There is no conflict. In some senses, Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, Elijah, one of the prophets, representing the, the most common way of describing the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, here testify to Jesus, testify to his continuity with them to confirm his prophetic unity. There is no conflict. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. In Luke 24, 44, the risen Christ, traveling on the road incognito, says, 
These words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, they speak of Jesus. And here are Moses and Elijah testifying, yes, this is the one of whom we wrote and spoke. Their presence confirms his identity. Their presence confirms his prophetic unity. Their presence also confirms his apocalyptic destiny, his apocalyptic destiny. If you look in your Bibles to try to find where any other place where Moses and Elijah are coextants, they, they're at the same place. There's only one other passage, and it's the last three verses of the Old Testament. Turn, turn to Malachi chapter 4. How does the Old Testament end? With Moses and Elijah. That's how. Malachi chapter 4. Verse 4 and 5 and 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. How does the Old Testament end? Remember Moses and his law and look for Elijah, who will come for the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so their presence here testifies to the fact that this is the one who will bring in the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is the one who at his return, at his second coming, will, will fulfill all those prophecies assigned to the day of the Lord. If you remember in our study of the book of Zechariah, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we saw what happens when the Lord God returns, when Jesus Christ returns to earth. And so their presence here is, is pointing to the fact this is the one. This is the one who will accomplish those things. This is the one whose destiny it is to bring about and be center stage in the events of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Fourth, Luke tells us they're here to speak with Jesus and to speak with him specifically of his, and here's your blank, exodus in Jerusalem. Now, ESV simply has his departure, but the Greek word is simply Exodus. And it's significant. Jesus is going to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. And you can't have the word exodus with Moses standing right next to him and not think there's something going on with that. There is. There is. In what way will Jesus perform an exodus in Jerusalem? Let's just think about the first exodus. What happened? In the first exodus, God raised up a prophet and a leader to deliver his people from slavery. He did so by killing the firstborn son and through providing a covering through the blood of the lamb. And, and through that covering, the people were supernaturally delivered and they entered into a covenant with God at Sinai. Starting to sound familiar? Starting to see this lining up? Jesus would come and he would be that lamb slaughtered. He would be the firstborn son who died. 
And Jesus, through His death, would provide a means of escape, a way of escape for His people, delivering them not from slavery to some earthly ruler, but the far greater and more terrible slavery to sin. Listen to John 8, 34-36. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Already, how did Jesus identify His ministry in Luke's Gospel? In chapter 4, remember in His hometown in Nazareth, He opened the scroll of Isaiah. He opened it up to Isaiah 61. He read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus in Jerusalem would accomplish a second exodus for His people. Remember, the exodus is the Old Testament picture of salvation. Again and again in the Psalms and in the prophets, they point back to it. They point back to it. Remember how the Lord delivered you from Egypt to the mighty hand. Made you His sons and daughters because Israel enters into sonship with God. Out of Egypt I called my firstborn son, Hosea says. So God enters into a covenant. His people become His children. A lamb is slain, a firstborn son dies, slavery is destroyed, freedom is given. Yeah. Jesus delivers His people from their sins. Point two, Jesus brings a new and better covenant. Jesus brings a new and better covenant. Now again, Notice what we've got here. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He brings some of his people with him. There's glory. A great cloud comes and overshadows in verse 34. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Moses delivers the people from slavery in Egypt, takes them straight to a mountain where he goes up. There's a covenant. Listen to Exodus 24, verses 7. And following, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the Israel elders of Israel went up. They saw the God of Israel. They are under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire like stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And they did not lay his hand, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait for us here until we return. Behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go with them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses goes up on a mountain. 
he enters into a cloud with glory, and he receives the tablets of the covenant. What is the result of that? Moses' face glows. And you can read the account of that in Exodus 34. I'll just read a few moments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. You can read about how the people asked Moses to put a veil over his face. So Moses goes up on a mountain. He enters into a cloud of glory. He sees the glory of God. He receives the tablets of the covenant, and his face shines. Okay? Okay? Jesus, in Luke 22.22, says, as he institutes the Lord's Supper, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant of my blood. Jesus is also bringing a new covenant. And according to Hebrews 8.6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is enacting and bringing a new covenant, a covenant of salvation for his people. He goes up on the mountain. His face shines. And the Apostle Paul makes this connection in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen. As he contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant, and he centers in on Moses going up and seeing glory, and Jesus goes up on the mountain seeing glory. Listen to this. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, Moses going up, glory on the mountain, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and with the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Jesus will accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. He will deliver his people from the slavery of their sins. He will enact and purchase a new covenant that has greater glory and greater promises and greater blessing than any covenant that came before. And finally, I'm stealing a little bit from next week. What does the presence of Moses and Elijah have to do with him? It proves that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses and that we must listen to him. Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 18, please. Deuteronomy 18. And in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God makes a prophecy, starting in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18. 
The Lord God says this, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. You get that? I'm going to raise up a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. If you don't listen to him, there's going to be a reckoning. If there's a prophet like Moses, you need to listen to him. How does Deuteronomy end? Chapter 34, verses 10 through 12. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did. So God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. There hasn't been one yet. And so this is one of the expectations of the people. In John chapter 1, when the Pharisees in Jerusalem send the delegation to interrogate John the Baptist, one of the questions they ask him, they say, are you the Christ? He said, no, I am not. Are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? No, I am not. That's what they're referring to Deuteronomy 18. Are you him? And here, when the Father speaks in verse 35, Moses present. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You get it? God's going to raise a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. This, this, this one right here, listen to him. And in case you think I'm seeing things that aren't there, this is the exact point the Apostle Paul makes. And just turn to Acts 3 as we close. We'll just close by reading Acts 3. One of the sermons of Peter. Peter makes this very point. Acts chapter 3, verses 22 to 26. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and who have come after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. What is Moses and Elijah's presence do it confirms Jesus' identity, his unity with the prophets, his destiny. They speak of his exodus. It confirms that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. Listen to him. So understand that as we close. God the Father has gone on record audibly in the presence of witnesses. This is him. And what's the charge to us? Listen to him. Of course, biblically, listen means more than hearing. It means receiving and obeying. There's great blessing for listening to Christ. Luke has just established the authority. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. Who is Jesus? 
He is God's son. Who is Jesus? He is the prophet like Moses, and we must listen to him. We must listen to him. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you have sent your son, and you have sent ample testimony and witnesses to who he is. You have shown us his glory. You have revealed his identity. You have fulfilled your word. You have kept your promises. You have sent the greater prophet, greater than Moses. And now, Lord, it is up to us to listen, to hear, and to obey. Lord God, give us the eyes of faith that we might believe, we might see, we might have hearts of faith, that we might listen and hear him all the days of our life, that we would feed on him and his word, that we would let his word direct our thoughts, direct our actions, inform our minds and our understandings. Let's not lean on our own, but trust him and his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed. We'll gather again for the deacon's reports in about 15 minutes.